You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and this is our 103rd weekly episode where we take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years in time, and we report on all the hockey news that was being made back at that time. In this show, we look at the week of October 11th to 17th, 1971. Now, right off the bat, this week I'd like to—we'd like to uh, thank all our Patreon subscribers, including uh, a, a new subscriber this week, Scott Kingsley, who joined our family. Uh, thanks for supporting us. You're helping us to pay the bills, and in return, we've got some great, uh, great content for you—special content that uh, will only be available to the Patreon subscribers. Scott joins just in time to get our preview uh, episodes from the 71-72 season. Uh, We've got a free one that'll be going up that has to do with the OHA Junior A series and, of course, the NHL prediction show with all the details from some of the greatest hockey writers of of that time. If you like what we do here every day and you like the podcast, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe and we thank you for your support. So this week, the National Hockey League 71-72 season was now in full swing. Uh, Teams were playing games and there was a lot of news coming out this week. Uh, Some very... uh, uh, shocking stuff, some very interesting things, a little bit of WHA stuff, and we'll get to all that right now. Now, writers and fans alike in Montreal were raving about the way Yvonne Cornwy was flying around the ice in the Habs opening game, and predictions of a 50-goal season for the Roadrunner were all over the Montreal media. Yvonne just came out, he just seemed to find a new confidence uh, in his uh, abilities and his amazing speed, and it just looked like he was ready for a huge, huge season. Another Habs note from the opening weekend, Phil Meir was dressed as Ken Dryden's backup goaltender, and Rogi Vashon was relegated to the forum press box. Now we know, we all knew this situation can't go on for very long, and a trade would seem to be the only solution. It was well known at this time that the California Golden Seals had made a significant offer to the Canadians, but the offer included only cash for Mir. No players, no draft pick, no draft picks. So it, it seemed like he would be the likely netminder to be dealt. Although Vashon, Rogi Vashon, would probably be the goalie who would bring in a bigger haul for general manager Sam Pollock. And one more uh, Canadian's note from their opening night, 
The number four worn by Jean Bellabeau, who retired uh, right after the Stanley Cup uh, victory last spring, uh, that number was retired. And also on hand was the player who first made that number famous for Lake Canadien, R.L. Joliet. The Mighty Adam, also known as the Little Giant, wore that number from the time he came to the NHL in 1922-23 until his retirement after the 1937-38 season. Uh, here's a little bit about Aurel Joliet, written by my friend Kevin Shea uh, for the Hockey Hall of Fame. Now, Aurel Joliet was a, a prolific scorer and a relentless backchecker during his 16 rewarding seasons with Montreal. He never allowed his comparatively small frame to impede his progress in the NHL. Joliet often teamed with his good friend Howie Morenz to form one of the most potent offensive duels in NHL history. His blazing forays down the port side made him one of hockey's most exciting left wingers of all time and his combination of speed and small size made him one of the trickiest skaters to try and body check and not many were very successful. Jollett was acquired by the Canadians when he was traded for the legendary Newsy Lalonde in one of the most controversial deals in hockey's early years. But in his rookie season, the mighty Adam impressed fans with his speed and puck handling abilities. He was also a feisty adversary who frustrated his larger opponents and uh, if you wanted to call Aurel a shit disturber, you wouldn't really have been wrong. He scored 13 goals in 24 games from his left wing position in his rookie year, and the following season, he was put on line with Howie Morenz in one of the most successful moves that Canadians management ever made. Chalat had a wonderful National Hockey League career and when he retired in 1938 his regular season output read 270 goals and 460 points. His ability to break up plays defensively and quickly led to counterattack and provided the Canadians with a feared transitional game. They didn't talk about words like transitional back then but that's exactly what the Canadians mastered way back in those days. Over time he earned the respect of many of the toughest players in the NHL because of his fearless refusal to back down during on-nice confrontations. Now, many pictures you'll see of him, he wore a small black cap, and throughout his career, that reminded fans and players of his willingness to retaliate. If you tried to taunt Joliet by knocking his hat off the ice, it always brought a swift and often violent reaction. Consequently, that didn't happen too often. After uh, R.L.'s close friend Howie Morenz passed away in 1937, he was never the same on the ice. His passion and trademark speed uh, no longer were evident, and he retired in 1938. He was voted into Canada's Sports Hall of Fame and the Ottawa Sports Hall of Fame. The Canadians paid tribute to his glorious career by placing the Mighty Adam on their 75th anniversary Dream Team back in 1984. In addition, his number four was co-retired with Belleville and Joliet was elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1945. Here's an interesting media note about the California not-so-golden seals this week. 
We're not sure who the author of this is. It did appear in the Toronto Star without a byline, and uh, it said that Charles O'Finley would like to get the California Seals on radio and television, of course, in the Bay Area, but he can't even give away the radio and television rights. Nobody's interested. And Finley, a super insurance salesman, He's tried, but he's got no one to buy what he's selling. Last season, he got the games on the air and on TV, but it wasn't at all easy. He paid $90,000 to have his team's games broadcast and then talked the television company into showing 10 home games at $1,500 apiece. After five games, they actually asked to cancel the contract and Finley said that was okay. He told the Toronto Star that he lost $500,000 last season, and so there was no way that he would pay $90,000 to get his club on the radio. Now, despite the large hole in his bankroll, Finley's still enthusiastic about the Seals and the National Hockey League. He says, We have a much more entertaining team than a year ago, and the credit belongs to Gary Young, his new general manager. He has done a great job, says Finley, of cleaning house, giving the coach a group of young players motivated with the desire for victory. We'll see how that works out. Emil the Cat Francis, uh, the general manager coach of the New York Rangers, uh, submitted an interview with the great Dink Carroll of the Montreal Gazette. Mr. Carroll is now semi-retired, but produces a weekly column for the Gazette. And... Uh, the Cat says the NHL race this season is not just a three-team affair in the Eastern Division between New York, Boston, and Montreal. Francis says that the Toronto Maple Leafs are a dark horse team and they'll be in the mix because of their outstanding goalkeeping in Bernie Perrant and Jacques Plante. Back then, I, I agreed completely with France's assessment of the Maple Leafs. Getting Bernie Perrant was a brilliant, brilliant move by General Manager Jim Gregory and if I'm Maple Leafs ownership and management, I was going to do everything in my power to keep Bernie Perron happy. A contented goaler is often a great goaler and they've got a guy with the potential to be the absolute best in the game in Toronto and that's what they need if they're going to get back to the Stanley Cup dance. A little more Oakland Seals news as it came out, and we're kind of going in chronological order how the news came out this week. Early in the week, uh, the word was that the contested trade between the Seals and the Blackhawks was going to uh, be settled by binding arbitration by the NHL when uh, the two teams were going to try and negotiate a settlement. They couldn't come to an agreement, it seemed. So Clarence Campbell said one of the two parties, probably the Seals, requested arbitration. He was happy about that because that took the matter completely out of Campbell's hands. They were trying to figure out who was going to set up this arbitration. And it turned out it was going to be a committee, although we never did get the names of who was going to do it. And then they would decide just what would happen with this contested trade. You remember the deal. It sent Jerry Desjardins, uh, Jerry Pinder, and a minor leaguer named Kerry Bond to the Seals in exchange for the big goalie Gary Smith. Desjardins' arm was broken uh, last spring. It never healed properly. He can't play. And that left the Oakland Seals without any 
National Hockey League experience in goal. And, of course, that's a shortcoming of the general manager who's going to make this team so good, Gary Young. Pittsburgh hockey writer Bob Smizek tracked down goalie Roy Edwards this week. Uh, Roy told Red Kelly, the GM coach of the Penguins last week, that he was going home to Caledonia, Ontario to ponder his fuel future. This week, Roy told Smizek that he's given very strong consideration to going back to Pittsburgh and giving the NHL another try. Roy said that he needed more time to think about his career. Roy said, I wanted to find out what goes on besides hockey. What's the world of business like? Roy says, I'm 34 and it might have been a good time to quit. So Roy did. He went home to California and he said he he tinkered around the house. He watched television. Uh, He watched Montreal play the Rangers Saturday night. And he said that he enjoyed that game from his living room and also ate his heart out a little bit when he saw guys out there doing what he knew he could still do. Edwards told Smizek, I got the itch back watching that game. I think I'm going to come back. It's awfully hard to give up hockey. I enjoy playing. I enjoy the competition. And I miss the money. Tuesday's Maple Leaf practice produced some very bad news for the club. Defenseman Ricky Lee will be lost for 10 days to two weeks with damaged right knee ligaments. They're not torn. They are just damaged, according to the Leafs press uh, press release. And how did it happen? Well, he was checked in a scrimmage by teammate Jim Dory, and that hurt the knee. Serge Savard, another defenseman who's been injured, and remember he had that badly broken leg for the second time last spring, he was advised this week by the Habs doctors that he is not yet ready for scrimmages with the Canadians. He had hoped to be ready for opening night, but it's just taken a little longer than everybody thought for the leg to heal. That broken leg is, is it's actually being pretty stubborn, according to the doctors, and they want to be absolutely sure that Serge is ready to take on the rigors of playing against big guys like himself. So this tentative schedule set for Savard's return to the ice for scrimmage is about three weeks. The question being asked around Detroit this week, maybe more hopeful than anything else, was if Gordy Howe was on the comeback trail already. Gordy donned the blades for the first time since his summer hockey school, and he took part in some Red Wing scrimmages this week, but Gordy insists it's only to help out a few individual players. He told Howard Erickson of the Detroit Free Press that he was a little sore after the workout. Gordy said, those guys, the players, they were a little rough on me. I got in their East-West game and took a few checks, nothing deliberate. Guys are just having fun. Gordy says he's supposed to help out individual players who are having some trouble. And at when he was talking to Erickson, uh, he, he was noted that he appeared more relaxed and talkative than at any time since he had retired in the previous month. Did that mean he made a, a decision to come back or was he just really enjoying retirement? Now, Gordy said uh, these players that need help, he wants them to come to him when they need it. Uh, Gordy says, sure, I'll let them know if I spot something wrong, but I want them to feel like I'm just around for advice because Doug Barkley is the coach. I've seen both of the Red Wings games so far, and they haven't looked that bad. They're just having trouble scoring. Gordy says in the first game against the North Stars, the entire team was really, really nervous. 
bit of surprising uh, player moves from the North Stars this week. Two of the young players on whom the team was counting heavily this season were dispatched to the American Hockey League Cleveland Browns farm team. Freddie Barrett, a young defenseman, he was outstanding last season, but in mid-March he suffered a broken leg and he had been off skates right up until training camp. And Minnesota General Manager Ren Blair felt that Fred, a former Toronto Marlboro standout, he felt he might be able to regain his form a little more quickly by playing many minutes down at Cleveland. Uh, Blair said that Barrett's timing was off and that's what he needs is more ice time. And uh, the problem with Buster Harvey at the early part of camp it was thought that he had a bit of a bad attitude. Uh, but that improved. But the problem, the North Stars had five right wingers. Cleveland seemed to be short. And so Buster Harvey drew the short straw and he was sent down but Ren Blair said, don't worry, we expect both of these teams back on the North Stars very soon. We've got a bit of a WHA update this week. Uh, Jim Kearney of the Vancouver Sun got a hold of Gary Davidson. He's the uh, California manager who is going to be the president, commissioner, whatever you want to call him, of the World Hockey Association. And uh, he... Uh, was uh, talking about a few things that are happening. Nothing imminent, but next month in November, we're going to get some news. Gary says there are going to be all the areas and the principles involved in the new franchises will be announced and plans on how the league is going to acquire players and some of their other innovations are going to be announced after a November meeting and then a huge press conference. Other than this, Davidson would not be pinned down when Kearney spoke to him. The November announcement will come out of either New York or Chicago. So he said, wait until then and we'll have some surprises. The whole palpitating world We'll get the facts at that time. But he did say two or three things. The league definitely will start in October of 1972. There are franchise applications for the WHA from 18 different centers. 11 of them have already indicated they have substantial down payments. However, though, no... Uh, actual figures were announced. The total franchise package cost will be a minimum of $1 million. Now, while more American youngsters than ever before are playing the game, the WHA future is predicated primarily on the use of Canadian talent, and it will be in both the NHL and the WHA for a few years. Then just where is the WHA going to get the players? Davidson says, we feel there's enough talent around to fill our league. Well, what about the NHL? Does the WHA plan rating hockey's established major league? Gary Davidson said he wouldn't comment on that, and thus the con the conversation came to an end. You might remember we told you that the former NHL defenseman Jimmy Morrison, most recently of the Penguins, had been released from the Pittsburgh club during training camp. Well, Jimmy landed on his feet this week. He was signed by the American Hockey League Baltimore Clippers and was slated to be in their lineup by the end of this coming week. You got to feel sorry for poor Marv Edwards, one of hockey's really good guys, a popular player, no matter what team he ever played on, feisty guy, good goalkeeper. 
Marv rejected a chance to play in the National Hockey League again when the Seals wanted him to be their number one goalie. Now, the offer was based on his fine play in one exhibition game he played against the Kings on loan from the Maple Leafs, who have his NHL rights. But after the Seals said they'd like him to come there, Marv opted for the warmth and dryness of the desert in Phoenix with the Western Hockey League Roadrunners. So Marv headed back to Arizona, content with his lot in life, as the Roadrunners' main man in their nets. But a funny thing happened on the way to Arizona. Oh, Marv didn't really think it was funny. He arrived in Arizona all right, but his goaltending gear did not. Eleven days later, none of which he was able to spend on the ice, Marv's equipment still hadn't arrived in Phoenix, and he remained unable to practice. It was hoped that the equipment would turn up this week and then he'd be able to get back into some sort of shape. But if it didn't, then that meant he was going to have to break in an entire new set of gear, including skates, pads, and he might even have to get a form-fitted mask. And if you ever broke in new goalie pads, new gloves, and skates back in the 70s, that was an onerous task at best that took a few weeks. Now, getting the new mask might be a bit of a chore. Mars Facial Protection is crafted by a dentist in Port Coburn, Ontario, one Mr. Douglas McDonald. And by the way, I have two of Doug's creations right here in my collection. By the way, Marv's equipment, from what we understood, some of it, some of it did turn up eventually, but uh, it did take him a while to get back on the ice. The Bruins have been sluggish all through training camp and exhibition games, and the coach figures, Tom Johnson that is, figures he knows what's wrong, and all the players have been told, no moonlighting. In other words, they don't engage in any outside activities for which they will be compensated unless the club gives the player approval to do so. Of course, Alan Eagleson has filed a complaint with the NHL on behalf of the Players Association because the Bruins are taking money right out of Al Eagleson's pocket. Al arranges a lot of these appearances, so of course he gets a cut of the action, doesn't he? Charles Mulcahy, counsel for the Bruins, uh, who, by the way, uh, was in Toronto this week, he said the order will not be rescinded no matter what Eagleson does. One car company even advertises in Boston that Derek Sanderson personally will present the keys to all purchases of new cars. Is he going to leave one of the Bruins practices just to present somebody a set of keys? Good point, Charles. And speaking of automobiles and in not such a very nice light, Toronto Maple Leaf goalie Bernie Perrant was going to miss the weekend games against the Rangers and Bruins because of injuries he received in an automobile accident on Wednesday. Bernie was a passenger in a car driven by teammate Dennis Dupere, which was involved in a crash with a car driven by a fellow from Woodbridge, Ontario. Dupere suffered a 25-stitch cut above the hairline, but he's going to wear a helmet and he'll practice with the Leafs and play on the weekend. But Bernie's face was badly scraped and he was bruised on the shoulder and his hip. He was also cut for 15 stitches, but the facial cuts are more serious because that means he can't wear his mask. Perrant also lost two false front teeth, but he retained his sense of humor. Bernie said, this is the first time I look better with my face mask on than with it off. 
but he says, doesn't matter, I can't put it on anyway. The Mississauga police didn't give a lot of details on the accident, but said that Duperry has been charged with careless driving and failing to share half of the roadway. The accident occurred on Dixie Road near Highway 5, and it was raining at the time. They were saying, uh, Duperry said uh, that we were on our way back from getting Bernie's hunting license, and Bernie Pront is a great outdoorsman. So Bernie won't be off too long. His shoulder will be treated by the physiotherapist Carl Eliff and uh, there's no real serious injury. The worst of it is as soon as he can get his mask back on he'll be able to play. That's going to force Jacques Plante by the way to play both Leaf games on the upcoming weekend. Murray McLaughlin will probably be brought up from Tulsa to sit on the bench and watch Plante play. Well, another week of NFL season means another shot to win big at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Football League. New customers can bet just $1 on any NHL game and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a point. The last 0-0 tie in the NFL was in 1943, so I'd say this is pretty much of a no-brainer. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with the DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contest. DraftKings has given all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, use promo code THPN, throw down a dollar on any NFL game, and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a point. That's promo code THPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. You must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania. New customers only. There must be a minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager. One per customer only. Restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for all the details. Got a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And don't forget our other two sponsors as well. Newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper archive, allows us to do all the great research we get done to bring you this news. And of course, the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in downtown Port Coburn. Now, we had a story earlier this fall where uh, SEALs owner Charlie Finley wanted to kick coach Freddie Glover upstairs into the executive suite and replace him with Montreal, former Montreal great Bernie Boom Boom Jeffreyon. Well, the job was offered to Jeffreyon. Jeffreyon accepted it, but Glover refused the move and then Finley turned around and informed Bernie that the deal was off and Glover remained coach. Well, that is, he remained coach until this week when Finley and general manager Gary Young fired Fred just a week into the season. And who was Fred's replacement? Not Bernie Jeffreyon. He saw what a, a hot, stinking mess the Seals were. He wasn't getting involved in that. This uh, young fellow hired none other than Vic Stasiuk, the guy who very nearly ruined the Philadelphia Flyers team just last year. Don't you read the papers, Gary Young? Expect the Seals to respond initially to Stasiuk's coach because uh, Vic comes with a an act that runs very well for a few weeks just because he is enthusiastic. But Vic is not a modern coach. He's a throwback guy. 
Nothing wrong with that if it works, but it just doesn't work with Vicstasia. Those of us out there know that they might start off and, and play a little better. It ain't going to last. Why doesn't Gary Young figure this out? Here's a bit from Gump Worsley. He told Tim Burke of the Montreal Gazette this week that he figures he's gotten over his acute fear of flying, which plagued him since teams began using air travel. Gumper said, I don't mind flying like I used to. I sit up front with the pilots now and take in the whole thing. Cities all around us looking at the instruments. It's really something up front there. They'd never let you do it in the modern world 50 years later, Gump. Philadelphia newspapers had a, a little bit of uh, news on Andre Lacroix, the Flyers' uh, classy center, really a great playmaker. It looked like his days could be numbered. They mentioned that Bobby Clark, Serge Bernier, and Jimmy Johnson were the Flyers' three main centers, and Lacroix makes too much money and is too good a player to just have the occasional power play shifts. Well, after that uh, story appeared, just a day later, Lacroix was traded. They thought he was going to Toronto. The May police apparently were very interested in him. And Lacroix himself told Philadelphia reporters he'd like to go and play with Bernie Perrant in Toronto. But Lacroix was traded to the Chicago Blackhawks for a young, ill-tempered defenseman by the name of Rick Foley. Foley is a big guy, 225 pounds and more than six feet. He was playing for Dallas of the Central League, but he's coming up to the Flyers and he will lend some toughness to a team that can really use it. Fred Sherrill probably liked this guy until he tries to see what kind of hockey skill he has. Here's a bit of a weird story out of Buffalo. Boy, what a lot of problems they've had since they tried to raise the roof on Memorial Auditorium. There will be no radio or television production to allowed to be broadcast from the Memorial Auditorium because of, get this, a telephone strike. It seems the odd, which has been plagued by labor strife since the expansion was announced over a year ago, is having more problems. This really doesn't have anything to do with the building itself, but apparently the same union that represent, represents people who uh, do all the telephone work in the building and in other businesses in Buffalo also looks after the broadcast people. So the broadcast folks will be honoring picket lines and visiting teams that are coming in. The North Stars and the Blues, I believe, were to play there this week. They had games scheduled back, going back home. Those games would not be shown in the following week. Goofy, goofy story, that one. The Detroit Red Wings got their goaltending triumvirate down to two by the end of the week. They sent Andy Brown, the maskless one, off-season race car driver to the Tidewater Wings of the American Hockey League, leaving Joe Daly and Al Smith between the pipes for the Detroiters. It may be that Clarence Campbell was responding to the interview that uh, Jim Kearney put out with Gary Davison, WHA, but he said this week after that news came out that a lot of the speculation about the next round of NHL expansion is going to be put to rest sometime around October 25th because that's when the NHL Board of Governors is going to meet in Florida to discuss future plans for more NHL franchises. So stay tuned. We're going to get news pretty soon on that. 
Did you ever wonder how the Boston Bruins got such an unlikely nickname as the Bruins? Well, the Boston Globe actually related that story this week in their season preview issue. After Charles F. Adams had acquired the National Hockey League franchise for Boston and he'd hired Art Ross as the first general manager and coach, it became necessary to name the team. And the team, according to Mr. Adams, had to be inappropriate for a new entry to hockey wars. Number one, Adams insisted, and so did Ross, that the team's basic colors should be brown with yellow trim. This color scheme was selected primarily because Charles F. Adams was then president of Brookside Stores, and all of those stores had a color combination of brown with yellow trim. The name chosen, according to Adams, had to be Uh, related to an untamed animal whose name was synonymous with size, strength, agility, ferocity, and cunning. And this uh, animal should be in the color brown category. Dozens of names were submitted from various sources like the news media, sportsmen, and fans. I don't think they ran a contest, but they did uh, solicit ideas and many, many were submitted, but none were entirely satisfactory to Art Ross or Charles Adams. So Ross had a secretary who, by the way, ran a sporting goods store at the time in Montreal. That person submitted the name Bruin And that was ultimately uh, accepted as the team name for the Boston National Hockey League franchise. So now you know. Well, by the end of the week, guess what? We got more California Golden Seals news. This uh, trade that we've been talking about finally went to arbitration. At least that's what we thought. No, it didn't. It really didn't. The Seals and Blackhawks somehow got together and hammered out another trade that would sort of reverse the first one, not completely, but it made Charles Finley and Gary Young happy. The Blackhawks were more or less happy, and so here's what happened. The teams came came to an agreement. They worked reworked the deal. Now, what they did on... Uh, Sunday of this week, the Seals sent Jerry Desjardins, the injured goalkeeper, back to the Blackhawks, who now would have a goaltending threesome of Tony Esposito, Gary Smith, and Jerry Desjardins. No, Desjardins wasn't going to be ready until probably at least mid-season. Going to the Seals was a defenseman by the name of Paul Schmier, one of those bubble players, just not quite good enough for the Blackhawks' top five rear guards, but way too good to be playing in the minors. So he went to the Seals, along with rookie goalie, Gilles Malash. Now, Malash had played a bit last season. He made his NHL debut with the Hawks back last spring, and he looked really good. But the kid is only 21, 22 now, Uh He's probably going to be end up playing with the Seals this year. I don't know whether playing with such a team as the California Seals would shock the kid into realizing exactly what he needs to do in the NHL or would it drive him away running in fear because it would be a pretty daunting task. Remember, last year the Seals were so bad they had nobody behind Gary Smith and he was forced to play 71 games and it caused Gary all kinds of anxiety, which he was still trying to recover from in training camp this year. 
what went a long way to really making Gary feel better having a real hockey team in front of him and he's going to continue to do that at least for this season now this got Clarence Campbell off the hook and the rest of the NHL who was ever was going to arbitrate this stuff they were really happy about this because they didn't want to have to make a decision in an arbitration that became a real mess because an inexperienced rookie general manager failed to do his due diligence the seals will be happy with Malash. they'll like schmear he's a tough guy and the blackhawks come back with a pretty good goalkeeper that may be once he's healthy used in another uh, pretty good trade for the blackhawks and this is our actually going to be our final story this week we wanted to uh, devote uh, quite a bit of time this awful totally unexpected news out of Toronto where the death of Maple Leafs president Stafford Smythe was announced no one saw this coming uh, we're going to do a uh, overtime session to really get to, into Smythe's career uh, and, uh, and the reaction around the NHL to this but uh, this was big news for many reasons and We'll give you the uh, Canadian press story on Stafford Smythe's passing right now. Stafford Smythe, 51, president of Maple Leaf Gardens Limited and son of Con Smythe, the man who built the gardens and started the Toronto Maple Leafs, died Tuesday in Toronto. A spokesman at Wellesley Hospital said the death occurred at 5.25 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Smythe underwent emergency surgery Monday night after suffering a massive hemorrhage in the veins of the esophagus tube that leads from the throat to the stomach. Dr. Robert Mitchell, who performed the operation that took several hours, said the bleeding had been controlled. However, he said, there was concern whether the kidneys and lungs had the necessary reserves for recovery. Smythe entered hospital a week ago with a bleeding ulcer. Dr. Mitchell said Smythe was not undergoing any surgery when he died. There had been no further bleeding at all, Dr. Mitchell said. Smythe put up a terrific fight, and I'm sorry we couldn't save him. Dr. Smythe said that he considered any further details personal and that anything else on the matter should come from the Smythe family. The uh, scheduled game Wednesday night between the Maple Leafs and the Red Wings at Maple Leaf Gardens was postponed immediately until a later date. Also canceled was a reunion dinner for members of the first Toronto Maple Leaf Stanley Cup team, which was back in 1931-32, and funeral services will be held at St. Paul's Anglican Church in Toronto at 3 p.m. on Thursday. The following day on Thursday, the Toronto Globe and Mail ran Stafford Smythe obituary. It's lengthy, but I want to go through most of it because it gives you a, a real idea of who the guy was. I didn't like him. I didn't like his attitude, his condescending nature. Uh, he was arrogant, but then again, he was raised in privilege uh, in the Smythe family, and uh, he had some of the lesser qualities of his dad, Con Smythe. Uh, Gord, Gord Walker and Rex McLeod did the obituary, and we'll present that to you right here. Stafford Smythe will be buried today, about six weeks after he and his partner, Harold Ballard, purchased controlling interest of Maple Leaf Gardens and the Maple Leafs of the National Hockey League. Smythe, who was 50 last March 15th, 
died in Wellesley Hospital early yesterday from complications which developed after surgery. The Leafs were to open their NHL schedule with Detroit Red Wings last night, but the game was postponed and it will be rescheduled at a later date. It would probably have appealed to Smythe's sardonic sense of humor that only two people have caused National Hockey League games in Maple Leaf Gardens to be postponed. Those two people, himself, and the King of England. The other time it happened was in February of 1952, after the death of King George VI. Smythe, son of gardens builder and NHL pioneer Con Smythe, was admitted to hospital last Wednesday for treatment for a bleeding ulcer. He had surgery and was thought to be making satisfactory progress until Monday night when he suffered a massive hemorrhage of the esophagus. Staff, who said his ambition had always been to control Maple Leaf Gardens, achieved that ambition on September 1st when he and Ballard borrowed about five point. $8 million to purchase shares that had been controlled by John Bassett. That gave them 75% of the garden shares. Smythe and Ballard joked that interest alone on their loan amounted to more than $1,048 a day. Ballard has first option to purchase Smythe's shares now that he's gone. Ballard said that he didn't know what he was going to do because the death of Smythe had hit him, quote, like a ton of bricks. Staff Smythe, Ballard, and Bassett originally bought 60% of the garden stock back in 1961 when they uh, bought, purchased most of the senior Smythe's, that's Con Smythe shares, and they paid $2 million total. Staff Smythe was called arrogant, autocratic, ruthless, mendacious, domineering, and numerous other things by people who don't know him and by some people who knew him very well. Staff insisted he was immune to what people thought of him or what they said, but this might have been a facade. Those close to him said he was extremely sensitive to public opinion. However, even when he was unjustly maligned, he seldom took trouble to correct the record. Although dour and sarcastic most of the time, he was always approachable. He rarely ducked a question even when he knew his answer would cause more controversy. He insisted he didn't seek controversy, just said it followed him around all the time. Staff was aware that he provoked instant antagonism in many, but he accepted this as inevitable because he was Con Smythe's son. To his detractors, he would concede only that he was tough. Leafs Vice President King Clancy, who has been associated with the club as the player, coach, and executive for over 50 years, said Smythe was often just simply misunderstood. King said, I feel terrible about this. He took such a lot of punishment from people before anything was ever proven. Clancy said he started with the old man, referring to Khan, but Staff was like his dad, a real class guy. Uh, Clancy said, around here, we knew him better than anyone else. He helped me in a lot of ways that people wouldn't know. Ballard's association with Staff Smythe started shortly after the end of the Second World War. Ballard said, when Staff came out of the Navy, I had the Marlboros all to myself, and I was looking for a coach. So I said to him, why don't you take over? And he said, why not? And that was it. And the two were inextricably linked forever. 
Ballard said that Smythe coached for a year, but things got kind of tough for him. He had asthma and being in all those uh, cold rinks all winter and all the travel. Windsor was in the league then. It all got to him. They got Sil Apps to come in as coach the juniors, and Staff and Hal became partners. Now, Smythe did play some junior for, for Hal before he went overseas with the Navy, and the crowd always got on him back then, told him he wouldn't be playing if it wasn't for his old man. And you got to think, that would uh, really affect a young guy, I think, especially in the uh, tough sport of hockey. Now, Smythe, in addition to his father, leaves his wife Dorothy, daughters Victoria, Mary, and Elizabeth, uh, his son Thomas, his sister Miriam, and a brother, Dr. Hugh Smythe. And I have spoken to Elizabeth a couple of times uh, about uh, articles we've done on staff. So it's very interesting uh, the things that uh, she's had to say about life in the Smythe family. In the funeral to be held on Thursday, Paul Barris would be his brother Hugh Smythe, his son Tommy, and gardens directors George Mara, Harold Ballard, and Terry Jeffries. Jim Gregory and players... George Armstrong and Bob Bond will also serve as pallbearers. Members of the least 31-32 team who are to be introduced at Wednesday's game that's now been canceled will be invited to stay in Toronto until after Saturday's game at which time they will be honored during the season's opening ceremonies. From the time he was a 10-year-old stick boy with the Leafs, Stafford was dedicated to a life in hockey at 11. He coached and managed a minor team 11 years old. He attended Upper Canada College for a year and Runnymede Collegiate uh, Institute after that. He played junior B hockey with Runnymede and in the prep group, he was a bit better than the average player. During the Second World War, staff rose from the ranks to become uh, a lieutenant in the flying service in the Royal Canadian Navy. And after the war, he worked in his father's sand business and was given the hockey job of reshaping the Marlboro's minor chain. Later, he was to manage the Marlboro's junior with great success, actually, developing in the process a number of outstanding players, including Billy Harris, Bob Nevin, Carl Brewer, Bob Bond, and Bobby Pulford. Controversy dog staffs every step, though. He battled with educators over their attitudes towards hockey, yet he estimated it cost the Marleys about $5,000 a year for special scholastic instruction, including private tutors for players who were slipping at their schoolwork. He gained a foothold in the professional hockey division of Maple Leaf Gardens in 1955 when he got himself elected to the board of directors. Now, two years later, his father appointed him chairman of the hockey committee, nicknamed by Con Smythe as the Silver Seven. And if you were a Maple Leaf fan back in those days in the 50s and 60s, you regarded the Silver Seven as some kind of omnipotent group that had all hockey knowledge wrapped into seven men. When he was made the uh, chairman of the hockey committee, his first major move was to fire former Maple Leaf Howie Meeker from his job as general manager. Outspoken and opinionated, uh, staff had several verbal tussles, I guess you could say, with players, game officials, league officials, and even with the government. He had Howie Young of the Blackhawks suspended for several games after complaining that the players spat upon fans and used foul language in front of them while serving a penalty. 
Gold judge, the late Johnny Finn, resigned after he said he was badgered by Smythe two nights in a row for not flashing the red light when Smythe thought the Leafs had scored goals. Referee Art Scove almost resigned from the NHL, but was talked out of it. After being hit in the face by a program, he said Smythe threw at him while the referee was giving the timekeeper details of a penalty to Eddie Shack, and I actually remember this particular incident taking place. In Montreal, he was told by Senator Hartland, the, the Molson, then owner of the Canadians, that he could go into the director's room at the forum if he wished, but added that he would not be welcome and he might not come out. Smythe and his partner Harold Ballard were later barred from the director's room at Madison Square Garden in New York, but it turned out this was more of a misunderstanding than an actual affront. Montreal Sammy Pollock filed tampering charges against Smythe when he offered Bernie Boom Boom Jeffreyon a $35,000 annual salary to sign with the Leafs. Jeffreyon at the time was coaching the Quebec Aces of the American Hockey League, but more important, he was still on Montreal's retired list and no offers from other NHL teams would be allowed to be made because of that fact. Here's what Smythe was like. In 1965, the great Ted Lindsay, he had retired a few years previously. He wanted to come off the voluntary retired list and play again for the Detroit Red Wings. Stafford Smythe took great pains to veto that move. Now, Ted had made the mistake himself of putting him on the retired list at first because when he originally retired, knowing how Punch Imlac did things, he was afraid that Toronto might draft him from the Red Wings, knowing he wouldn't report, and then, of course, he'd be suspended. He even had open form battles with his father, Khan. In March of 1959, Khan Smythe said Punch Imlac would stay as manager-coach, but Stafford took umbrage and said that Imlac could hire a coach if he wanted one, and if the directors didn't agree, they could get a new hockey committee. There was a family showdown in 1961. After Stafford had complained, he didn't have enough authority to run the hockey team, and he threatened to get out of hockey altogether, but they did manage to smooth that over. Although shares in the Maple Leafs were selling for about $34, the elder Smythe said his son could buy him out at 40 bucks a share. The transaction involved 50,000 shares, which made it a $2 million deal. Since then, the stock was split in 1965 on a 5-for-1 basis, and a share now is valued at about $28. Now, this is interesting. Con Smythe later insisted that he was disturbed that Harold Ballard and John Bassett were involved in the deal, and he added that if he had known the details, he would never have turned control over to his son. Harold Ballard ingratiating himself into the Smythe family really seemed a bit incongruous at the time. Knowing the straight-laced Smythe and how he operated and having Harold Ballard involved, you can know that Khan did not have a warm place in his heart for Harold Ballard, but somehow he got staff to be his buddy. And, well, this history shows us what an awful thing that was for the Maple Leafs that Conn Smythe so dearly loved. 
it's been a tumultuous couple of years for, for staff, and this may have contributed to his decline in health. On June 26, 1969, by a vote of 8-7, to seven, Gardner, Maple Leaf Gardens directors fired him as president, and at the same time, they fired Ballard as vice president. However... He returned later as president of the Maple Leaf Hockey Club. And more than a year after that, on December 17, 1970, he won his battle to regain control of the gardens, and he was reinstated as president and Ballard as vice president at the annual general meeting of the company. In the meantime, on July 10, 1969, charges of income tax evasion were made against the pair, Ballard and Smythe, on $278,900 for Smythe and $134,600 for Ballard. On June 18, 1971, Smythe and Ballard were arrested on charges of theft and fraud involving funds of Maple Leaf Gardens. Each was remanded on bail of $50,000. They were charged jointly with theft of 146000 in cash and securities from Maple Leaf Gardens between 1964 and 1969, and Smythe was also charged with defrauding the gardens of $249,000 in the same period. Stafford Smythe, president, basically owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, dead in 1971. So that is this week's show, everyone. And what came into our minds that we learned in this very eventful week? Well, we finally found out how the Seals and Blackhawks solved the mess that was their off-season trade of goalies. And they did so apparently without the help of the NHL. The Seals fired Fred Glover as their coach this week. But is the guy they're bringing in as a replacement any better? Remains to be seen. And this week, C. Stafford Smythe, president of the Maple Leafs suddenly passed away. This would seem to leave Harold Ballard in full control of the gardens and of the Leafs. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Well, we know what history tells us on that. Here's some of the stories we're working on for next week's show. We will learn how the executive suite of the Toronto Maple Leafs is going to look after the death of Stafford Smythe. There will be news on who the main tenant of the Nassau County Coliseum might be as a lot of intrigue surrounded that new building as it was nearing completion. Meanwhile, at the same time, an NHL quality rink near Cleveland, Ohio will win a legal battle around zoning in the area. And here's a story you might not have heard before and we'll tell you about it next week. There's a city in the south that wants to host the Stanley Cup final. 50 years ago, this was actually an idea. The city of Miami wants to host the Stanley Cup final outside, and we'll have the story for you next week. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. We can't thank him enough for all his hard work. Andy will produce a podcast for you if you want to uh, have something you want to do. Get a hold of me. I'll put you guys in touch and maybe he can put something together for you. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, The Rural, Alberta, Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. If you ever get to see him perform live, don't miss the opportunity. Andy Cole does other musical pieces in the show and creates the sound effects. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, and the many publications found at newspapers.com. 
You can find the podcast every week on the Hockey Podcast Network. We're on Twitter every day at at Hockey50Years. We have a Facebook page, a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And the podcast is available wherever you download podcasts as well. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. 71-72 season now underway. Already in this young hockey season, there has been earth-shattering news. Let's see what else is going to come up in this year before the NHL expands to 16 teams. And on that note, we'll see you next time. When the ice breaks.